You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, November 9th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Right after the BBC headlines, on the California Report, charred trees from the Dixie Fire get new life as low-cost lumber, and Central Valley dairies play a part in protecting the tricolored blackbird. After regional news and weather, Felton Pruitt talks so-called critical race theory with Nevada Union School Superintendent Brett McFadden in advance of Wednesday evening's school board meeting. Then it's Money Matters with Mark Cuniberti. This is the California Report. I'm Laura Clivens in San Francisco. With many holding anti-vaccine signs and American flags in Los Angeles yesterday, hundreds of public employees, like firefighters and sanitation workers, protested vaccine mandates outside of City Hall. Here's Michael Cunningham of the anti-vaccine mandate group Firefighters for Freedom addressing the crowd. We're here to send a message. We're here to send a message to the city. We're here to send a message to the state, and we're here to send a message across our great nation that we will never back down. The California Report's Saul Gonzalez spoke to people in the crowd and met L.A. County firefighter Mark Bauer, who talked about his opposition to the mandate and how much he was willing to risk. Why is it important for you to be here? Because we need to show in numbers that we're here to stand up for our freedom of choice, to choose what we want to be put in our, have put in our body. And what's your calculation? How far are you willing to take your personal protests against being vaccinated? Are you willing to lose your job? Yes. You are? Yes, I will not be getting vaccinated. I have a choice to not get the vaccine or not comply with any of these, what I would call ridiculous mandates. And I'll suffer the consequences. I think it's ridiculous, and I'm not asking for pity. I'll figure it out. So we would just say, thank you for your service. Good luck to you. Probably not. They'd probably say, you're an idiot. You should have got the vaccine. Most people, or not most, a lot of people would I'm being polite. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Let's be real. No, let's not yeah. be polite. This isn't polite. Yeah, a lot of people would say, you yeah. are an idiot. Yeah, I mean, this isn't about being polite at all. This is, this is an overreach, a massive overreach of the government, the local and, local and state government. It's a massive overreach, in my opinion. L.A. County employees had until October 1st to submit proof of their vaccination status, but thousands still haven't. A City of L.A. mandate requires municipal workers to get vaccinated by December 18th or receive a medical or religious exemption. Fast food workers across California will walk out today to advocate for better working conditions. KQED's Shireen Kareem has more. The workers are calling for the passage of Assembly Bill 257, which would establish a fast food council to set standards for industry wages and working conditions. Crystal Orozco is a shift supervisor at a jack-in-a-box in Folsom. She says that she was threatened with reduced hours after she complained about a lack of breaks. For the bill, it gives us the opportunity to be able to talk to the main people and voice ourselves and not go through the lower management. You know, and this will give us the opportunity to skip them and talk to, you know, our employers directly and let them know what's going on. The council would include employees, franchises, and representatives from government agencies and corporations. 
For the California Report, I'm Shireen Kareem. After burning nearly a million acres, the Dixie Fire, which started in July northwest of Lake Tahoe, was fully contained late last month. But for many communities in Northern California, the recovery process is just beginning. The California Report's Keith Mizuguchi has the story of one organization's efforts to use items charred in the blaze to rebuild. Many staff members at the nonprofit Sierra Institute for Community and Environment know firsthand how devastating the Dixie Fire was. Executive Director Jonathan Cusel says many lost their homes in the fire, but they're now helping to provide some hope for communities like Greenville, which burned to the ground. The Institute has partnered with a logging company that has been in Plumas County for generations to purchase a local sawmill. Cusel says the hope is to repurpose trees that burned in the fire and turn them into materials that can be used to rebuild homes and businesses. We're rebuilding a bunch of different things, but make no mistake, in the short term, we're also rebuilding hope. Because a fire with the devastation of Dixity damages all sorts of things and extinguishes hope. And people wonder if they should even stick around. All this will provide lower-cost lumber to the community, as many residents have lost their jobs and are going to struggle to rebuild. Cusel says they're not just using trees that burned in the fire. There's a lot of material that has to be removed to have safe uh, roads to allow people to rebuild so there's not a large dead tree that's going to fall on whatever they build. So much of that has to be removed. We can chip it and it'll go to some low value use somewhere or, and scatter it, or we can actually put it to some use and ideally value that can support also some jobs as well. Cusel says the hope is to have the mill up and running within the next month and show the community that they're not going away. For The California Report, I'm Keith Mizuguchi. Support for The California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together on the web at schmidtfutures.com. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Give a listen to this. That's the sound of the tri-colored blackbird courtesy of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. The bird, native to much of the Central Valley, gained protection under California's Endangered Species Act of 2018. Since then, populations of the tricolored blackbird appear to have stopped declining. As Valley Public Radio's Carrie Klein reports, that's thanks in large part to San Joaquin Valley dairies. Tricolored blackbirds have lost most of their native breeding habitats and wetlands, but some have found new nesting spots, silage fields, including the ones at Simon Vanderwouda's dairy farms in Merced County. They've found that these dairy fields are a lot easier to eat from, and there's usually a, a barn full of grain next door. So I had 30,000 birds coming up to my grain piles every day and feeding themselves. Enormous colonies like this have popped up at more than a dozen dairies across the valley. The birds are in jeopardy if the grains are harvested before they've left, so Vanderwouda is among a small contingent of dairy producers delaying harvest. A program compensates producers like him for at least some of their losses. It was started in 2015 by environmental groups and the state. 
Here's Jeronimo Castaneda with Audubon, California. We're pretty confident that most years we're able to protect 100% of the most at-risk colonies. So that's a big win. Six years in, he estimates hundreds of thousands of birds have been protected. For The California Report, I'm Carrie Klein in Fresno. And that's The California Report for Tuesday, November 9th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Laura Clivens. Thanks for listening. In regional news, Nevada County's public health officer, Dr. Scott Kellerman, today issued an amendment to his order of last August limiting attendance at local events. The amended order, which leaves masking requirements in place, is to go into effect Wednesday. The amended order removes the local prohibition on indoor and outdoor gatherings or events attended by 2,500 or more people. It also rescinds the requirement that events with 500 attendees or more have a plan to verify vaccination status or proof of a negative COVID test. The order continues the requirement for indoor masking regardless of vaccination status and requires masking outdoors where distance isn't possible. Kellerman was quoted in a news release from the county as saying the amended order allows event organizers to follow state guidance on events while leaving local masking requirements in place. Kellerman said we still have widespread transmission of COVID-19 in Nevada County and masking will help decrease the spread as the weather turns cold and more people gather indoors. While the indoor mask mandate remains in place in Nevada County, Kellerman made an exception for performers. The amended order allows performers who are fully vaccinated and have had a negative test for COVID-19 within 24 hours of their performance to not wear a mask while singing or performing. The order encourages those who wish to sponsor safe events to continue to require proof of vaccination or a negative test within 72 hours, regardless of the number of people attending the event. Kellerman noted that many local businesses and event organizers have voluntarily implemented similar requirements to keep their customers and patrons safe. He said, Our arts organizations have led the way on providing safe events for the community. We believe this change will decrease confusion between local and state requirements and allow our businesses and venues to plan for future events. The amended order comes as COVID cases are plateauing in Nevada County. As of Monday, the seven-day average case rate was 18.2 per 100,000 people. Hospitalizations for COVID-19 have remained stable over the past month. At the regular meeting of the Nevada City City Council Wednesday evening, the council will once more discuss a proposal for reconfiguring historic Commercial Street to make it more pedestrian-friendly. A year ago, the council approved a site study that would provide for nine-foot sidewalks on both sides of the street and a widened intersection at Main and Commercial. Since then, the city's approach to outdoor dining has changed due to COVID restrictions. Wednesday evening, it will go back to the drawing board to consider the desired width of sidewalks and the roadway, aesthetic decisions about pavers and curbs, and permanent amenities such as seating. It will consider widening the sidewalks up to 15 feet. Following City Council approval of any plan revision, City staff will finalize the design and prepare plans and specifications. The anticipated schedule would be to advertise for bids in December with an anticipated construction start in February. 
The Nevada County Historical Society objects to the plan to widen sidewalks beyond nine feet, saying that Commercial Street must keep its historic scale and ambience. Wednesday's meeting is via the Zoom platform and begins at 6.30 p.m. Copious information about the agenda is available at nevadacityca.gov. The Sierra Fund announced Monday that its board of directors has hired Joan Clayberg as its executive director. She begins her new position this week. Clayberg brings three decades of conservation leadership experience to the Sierra Fund. She served for more than a decade as executive director of the Sierra Nevada Alliance, was a senior leader at Western Resource Advocates, and most recently has provided strategic management consulting. She replaces Elizabeth Izzy Martin, who announced her retirement earlier this year after two decades in the position. Founded in 2001, the Sierra Fund advocates for restoring resilience to the ecosystems and communities of the Sierra Nevada in the face of climate change. In the weather for our region, showers dissipating later this evening, for the next week a mixture of sun and clouds and a warming trend with no more precipitation in the forecast. Tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley, showers continuing till about 10 p.m., then mostly cloudy with a low of 48 degrees. Wednesday, some clouds in the morning will give way to mainly sunny skies in the afternoon with a high of 62 and a low of 46. In Truckee tonight, partly cloudy with a low of 30 degrees. Wednesday in Truckee, sunshine with some cloudy intervals, a high of 54 and a low of 30. In Sacramento, cloudy tonight with a low of 50. Wednesday in Sacramento, partly cloudy with a high of 66 and a low of 48. It's a discussion that is already active in many parts of the country, and it's coming to Nevada County Wednesday evening. A controversy over something that some folks have dubbed critical race theory will get an airing before the Board of Trustees of the Nevada Joint Union High School District. Want to have your voice heard in the debate? Find out how in this report from KVMR's Felton Pruitt. We're talking with Brett McFadden, Nevada Joint Union High School Superintendent. Tomorrow night, the district's Board of Trustees is going to hold a meeting, and one of the main topics there is going to be critical race theory. A group called Protecting American Ideals will be presenting their opinions. First, Brett, let's talk about critical race theory. Can you briefly explain to people what that is? Yes. There's a number of different viewpoints on what it is. It's a debate that's occurring and a discussion that's occurring nationwide in various public forums. It has garnered significant attention in the school boards forums. So school boards from Colorado all the way to Maine, to Florida, and now here in California are being presented with this issue of critical race theory. It was a theory that, from my understanding, that was developed several decades ago by a number of college-level, university-level academics as a mode of examining public policy as well as examining history for the possibilities of institutional racism or elements of racism that were embedded in either particular laws or practices in particular countries or localities. That's the textbook answer, but there's others 
depending on you know where they may fall in terms of their philosophical beliefs that believe actually that it goes much farther than that that it's potentially leading to a denigration of american values and leading to socialistic or marxist thoughts while others on the other side of the spectrum believe that no it's just a mechanism to analyze policy to find out if there are elements of either implicit or explicit bias or racism embedded in a particular practice or law. So it has become a very hot button issue. And um, unfortunately, uh, in today's heated political environment, it can be difficult to have discussions, um, rational discussions about public policy in these in these times. So the meeting is tomorrow night at 6 o'clock, and it's at Nevada Union but in the wrestling gym? Yes, we're expecting a fairly sizable crowd, and so we've secured the wrestling gym and made arrangements for folks to be able to sit in the bleachers and observe the meeting. This is out of the ordinary, Felton. We don't typically have outside groups make their own presentations to the school board. School board meetings are really set forth and designed for the school board to conduct its business and its business of governance in an open forum. So it's a public meeting of the board. Those meetings are not necessarily intended to be the public's meeting. I know that can sound crass, but town hall meetings or specific workshops that we have for the public are opportunities for the public to lend their viewpoint or input on things. The public does have the ability to comment on board items that are before the board on a specific agenda, but this is a bit out of the ordinary. Nevertheless, our board, the board of the trustees of the high school district felt that this group should be allowed to present its viewpoints on that and that this issue and this presentation was warranted before the school board. There is an option for people to email you comments before this by 3 p.m. tomorrow afternoon. How would they do that? Yes. Yeah, so if they go on our website and under our board agenda, there's a specific link that they can send their written comments and they have to be received by 3 p.m. tomorrow. All of those comments are going to every single board member as well as the administration here. We won't read all of those comments because we're already receiving a number of comments now, so we won't have the time to do that. But We'll indicate that letters have been received, depending on the side of the issue and such, and we'll indicate what letters we've received. And then we're figuring out now, right now about how we'll you know, issue acknowledgement of that letter and that input. Our website is www.njuhsd.com. That's tomorrow, 6 o'clock at Nevada Union High School. Anything else you want to tell us, Brett? Yeah, Felton. Individuals, if they wish to attend the meeting, they can also attend the meeting in person and they can provide their public comment in person if they wish to do so as well. We expect a large crowd. So depending on the number of individuals I want to speak, we may not be able to accommodate everyone. But if individuals would like to be there in person and observe the meeting or try to provide public comment, they're welcome to do so as well. We've been talking with Brett McFadden, the Nevada Joint Union High School Superintendent. Thank you for all the information, Brett. Happy to, Felton. Thank you. We close tonight's newscast with Money Matters. 
Mark Cuniberti sounds the alarm about the worst-case economic scenarios that he thinks could be in our future if deficit spending and inflation escalate until they are fatally out of hand. Welcome to another Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. It is said that problems have solutions, whereas predicaments only have outcomes. If this is true, the U.S. economy's future, and indeed our immediate way of life, awaits an outcome that the feds can do nothing about. Ex-Federal Reserve Chief Alan Greenspan used the word conundrum on occasion, yet conundrums do have outcomes, they are just difficult ones. The predicament we now find ourselves in is indeed unresolvable and revolves around the subject of last week's newscast about inflation and the latest news out of Washington. Washington about another trillion in spending just passed this weekend in the new infrastructure bill. Add this new bill to the first $5 trillion spent by the U.S. government in 2021 on COVID relief, and you have a recipe for even more inflation than we are seeing now. Deficit spending and inflation go hand in hand. There is no argument on that economic reality. The debate is not whether inflation follows massive deficit spending. It does. It is now, and everyone knows it. The question is, can the Fed stop inflation if it gets out of hand? The answer is yes, they can, but that is not the predicament. The question becomes, what is the effect on the economy from using the known tools to stop Top inflation, therein lies the predicament. If inflation begins to accelerate to unacceptable levels, then it's going pretty fast now. Real damage to the economy and its inhabitants will occur. The most obvious problem is people won't be able to afford to buy things they need. But as horrible as that is, that will be the least of our problems. Really bad inflation, known as hyperinflation, or even approaching hyperinflation, can cause breakages in the economic system, many of which can actually stop it from predictably functioning. The result of that is the normal economic signal that transmit what is happening in the marketplace to those participating in it, which is all of us, begin to fail, sending false or even misleading signals to all concerned, which again is all of us. Since markets, not just the stock markets, but all markets where things are sold, depend on accurate economic signals to regulate the flow of goods and services from suppliers to end users, when these signals fail, the normal flow of everything is interrupted or may even fail altogether. This can translate into empty store shelves at best and chaos on many levels at worst. For a recent but relatively inconvenient example of a market failure, just look at the job market, where unemployment levels are relatively high in the midst of millions of unfilled jobs. In spite of rising prices, slowing unemployment checks and stimulus programs ending, employers cannot still find enough workers to fill staffing positions. Although a serious problem, it will pale in comparison of what will happen should we even get close to a hyperinflationary environment. The tools to stop inflation are the same used for normal inflation, except used on a much more drastic scale. The Fed would increase interest rates and likely not the quarter point increases we have seen in the past. Interest rates were increased 3% in one day in the 1980s. Experts agree an increase of this proportion would crash the economy in today's environment. Social programs would have to be eliminated or drastically cut. Government spending would have to be significantly cut. The feds would have its hands tied to initiate more stimulus and bailouts as this is what caused the problem. So those suffering would get little help from the government. Credit and loans would likely have to be recalled in an attempt to remove cash from the system addressing the inflation. The credit markets would likely freeze up due to the unpredictable yields of fast-moving interest rates. Both government, businesses, and individual balance sheets would explode due to rising interest rate costs to service existing debt. In essence, all hell would break loose, and the Feds, having only one tool in the proverbial toolbox, which is printing money, would be powerless to use it as that is what caused the problem in the first place. 
Simply put, the predicament is that the very thing they would use to address the economic sickness caused the sickness. With no solution, the feds have essentially painted themselves into the proverbial corner, hence the statement, print or die, which automatically morphs into print and die. Not a happy ending, I know. Today's newscast is an opinion of myself and does not represent any opinion of this news media. Its staff members are underwriters and should not be construed as investment advice, nor represents the opinion of any bank, investment, or advisory firm. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California insurance license OL34249 and I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. My name is Mark Cunaberti. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, Food Sleuth, with host Melinda Hemmelgarn, unearths the hidden stories behind our favorite distilled spirits. Hemmelgarn interviews Shauna Farrell, an expert in cocktail culture, who tells us why eco-conscious consumers should pay attention to both their food and drink. And at 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Sierra Moon, family-owned in Old Town, Auburn. Customers can work closely with a jewelry designer to help create a -a one-of-a-kind piece. Also specializing in jewelry repair and bridal designs. SierraMoonGoldsmiths.com And Don Adams Antenna Services, local dish authorized retailer, assisting Nevada County residents with satellite television for over 35 years. Jaworski Drive, Grass Valley, 530-274-3709, donadamsgv.com. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs every weekday at 6 p.m. At our website, kvmr.org, you can find stories you may have missed and expanded versions of many of our interviews. And you can listen to the KVMR News wherever you get your podcasts. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Have a wonderful evening.